Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor. This podcast is brought to you in partnerships with Missio Alliance and Kairos Partnerships. Um, JR, it's good to see you, man. You as well. You as well, man. I'm really pumped that today we get to have another episode of the crap in JR's office. <laughs> and today I am looking around and I see a brick, uh, which <laughs> I mean, I guess like most people have bricks in their office. Is it for home protection? Like, <laughs> you know, what is it? Why is it here? What's yeah. going on? It, it's a little bit of a backstory, but I guess that's the point of this, this uh, part of the episode. <laughs> Crappy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so there's a brick in my office because... Um, at the University of Virginia, I, you know, we lived in Charlottesville, Virginia growing up since I was six and, um, huge, uh, Virginia Cavaliers fan. So we had season tickets for football, went to a lot of basketball games. So ACC country for sure. And, um, but we used to watch them in you, what's called U-Haul, University Hall. And, uh, just recently they ripped down the old university hall because they've got a new beautiful state-of-the-art stadium now across the street. And uh, because I watched so many games in there, uh, I heard online like, hey, if you want to come get a brick where, you know, we've demolished it, it's a big pile of bricks. Anyone in Charlottesville can come and take a brick if you want. And obviously I wasn't there. So on Facebook, I just said, hey, any of my Charlottesville friends, if you have a chance, will you pick up a brick for me? I'll pay for shipping. <laughs> and dear friends of ours, Barb and Kevin Sauer, Mrs. Sauer, she she got a brick for me and mailed it to me. So I have University Hall in my office that will not only live on in my memory, but will live on in the brick that's on my shelf. And what's even more amazing, Doug, you may or may not know this, but the University of Virginia, for the first time in their history, their men's basketball team just won the national championship. March Madness belongs to the Cavaliers. So the fact they ripped it down right after winning the national championship was just so sweet. So that brick is pretty important, then. It's very important. Don't you dare steal that brick from I my promise office. I won't. If there is ever a missing brick. Oh, my gosh. Well, so, I mean, I feel like so many questions. Like, first of all, how much does it cost to mail a brick? <laughs> I offer. As a Mrs. Sauer, you've given me such a gift. How much do I owe you? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about Start it. Start looking up bricks on Amazon. People are Googling. Like, what is this? Oh, man. But, you know, I, I think what I love about that, JR, and especially when it comes to pretty much anything Virginia I sense in you, there's like this joy just sort of wells up. And yes. We're, we are in a season of Advent yes. where people talk about joy. And I know you also have another great story of joy that may or may not have to do with NCAA basketball. Oh, it, does. it does. In fact, I'm giggling just thinking about this. <laughs> <laughs> so Virginia, you know, uh, two years ago, they were the number one seed. And something that's never happened is the number one seed has never been knocked off, or never been knocked out by a 16 seed in the tournament ever. And not only that, Virginia was the number one, number one seed, like the number one seed overall. And horror of horrors... <laughs> The number one team, the Virginia Cavaliers, got knocked out by University of Maryland, Baltimore County, UMBC. History, they call it the greatest upset ever. I was sick to my stomach. <laughs> I was like in a, Northern Virginia. Sounds like a some, desolation. <laughs> it was awful. It was absolutely awful. And uh, so, I mean, I couldn't even watch the rest of March Madness two years ago. Uh, then this year, uh, they came back, number one seed. But I didn't pick them to go the whole way because I thought they're going to, you know, this curse is going to continue. They ended up making it to the final four, which is the last time they made it to the final four. I was five years old. Mm. And so super excited about it with a group of non-superstars led by uh, a guy who I have immense respect for as a leader, as a Christian, and as a coach by the name of Tony Bennett. Not the singer, the coach. <laughs> Unbelievable guy. And um, so I... Uh, Anyway, I, I was so excited. They made it to the final four. I talked to somebody who um, her husband has a role in college basketball, works for the, the NCAA. And I said, oh, I'm so excited. You know, Virginia made the final four. And she said, I totally forgot that was your team. So I, I, I saw her in the Midwest. I, when I landed back, my plane landed. I had a voicemail message saying, you know, my husband and I were talking. We have an extra ticket. We'll be at the game. We have an extra ticket in Minneapolis for the final four. And we'd like to give it to you. Uh, for the championship game. And I was like, what? <laughs> and then Googled, uh, you know, looked up 
uh, prices and the flights were so stinking expensive. There's no way it was like over fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars just for stars. a flight to Minneapolis and back. And I'm like, there's no way I can justify this. So all that to say, we worked it out. Crazy schedule. I flew there no problem, but getting home was just um, an adventure in and of itself. But was given a ticket. But because I was sitting in officials' seats. During the game, I'm watching my team, the Virginia Cavaliers, play in the championship game. They have never been there. Um, they basically said, look, you can't wear any Virginia gear because these are official seats. And you, because these are official seats, you have to be unbiased. And you can't cheer. <laughs> I was like, what? what? This is my team. And so Megan looked at me. And she's like, I'm so glad you're going. You get this free ticket. It was 10 seats off the court oh, like close enough we can hear the players talking wow. we can hear the coach barking out <laughs> plays uh at the national championship game um and uh megan said i think this will be physically unhealthy for you <laughs> to keep it to yourself and so i kept it to myself for the most part but i mean i let out once we got outside into the public again after the game was over. So thousands of people milling around outside the Vikings stadium, right? Cause they, it's a football stadium. They build a court in the middle of the football field. And it was the same field where the Eagles won the Super Bowl, which is kind of cool too. There is some um, good, this is a deep dive yeah, right now. This is dive. a deep Sorry dive. Sorry if you're not a sports fan here, folks. <laughs> but, uh, but I'll tell you, I got outside of the Vikings stadium and I let out a primal scream slash roar <laughs> that would probably freak out all sorts of people, young and old. <laughs> but I had this pent up joy. They won, and I can finally yell. Uh, and I lost my voice uh, on, on my trip back. Which <laughs> the trip back was a, a nightmare in and of itself, but it was totally worth it. But the joy it made me think about this idea of joy. Long story, but it made me think about joy cannot be kept to itself. Oh. Oh. Joy has to be shared. There's not a bride in America that sees their really good friend after three weeks and goes, oh, I forgot to tell you, I got engaged three weeks ago. <laughs> it's They can't not. They're glowing, right? They're, they, there's joy. We have to share it. When, when someone hits a buzzer beater in whatever sport, at the final buzzer, you see on YouTube replays, compilation videos of that. They throw their hands up in the air and they jump up and down. There's no PA announcer that gets on and says, by the way, if this person hits a buzzer beater from half court, everybody, everybody jump up and down, everybody <laughs> practice, throw your hands in the air and jump up and down. It's because we're hardwired for it. Uh -huh. And so when it comes to joy at Christmas time, of that idea that joy cannot be kept to itself. If it is, I don't think it's joy. Because we have to share. Kids have to share joy with us. We, When we have joy, we have to share. And if we don't, kind of like what I felt sitting there during the game, it's like physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually unhealthy for us to keep joy to <laughs> I can itself. just like picture you sitting there watching the game and like having these amazing plays happen and you're just kind of like, Oh, there were lots like of grunting. There was like, like, it was, mm. it was like, <laughs> sorry if you're in the car, I didn't mean to scare you there if you're listening to the podcast, but it was lots of that. And I would duck down. There was a large man sitting in front of me. So Praise I would duck down and be like, and then come back up with a stoic face because we were in line with like CBS camera crews. You could see us from oh our seats. Gosh. So it was, yeah, I don't think I slept for like two and a half days after that. I was so amped up. But it was it was awesome. But but that idea of joy has to be shared. Mm. If you keep joy in, it is it is wrong. It is wrong. And that's what I love about the angels sharing the joy, mm. right? Yeah. Like, Come on, we can go. Let's go tell them. Let's tell, yeah. let me tell them. No, let me tell yeah. them. Let me tell the shepherds. Then the shepherds feel joy. And then what do they do? They run back and they search and ask everywhere in Bethlehem. And this idea of I can't not share somewhere somehow with someone when i experienced joy yeah. that was i got to embody what joy not shared felt like and it's an awful feeling mm -hmm. danae pierre serves as the director of surge network where she oversees the vision, mission, and development of the network itself. Surge is a movement of local churches united to put Jesus on display through equipping our congregations, sending servant leaders, and blessing our cities. 
Surge is a collaborative partnership of many local congregations throughout Arizona. They're very clear on their website that they are not a parachurch or a separate nonprofit, but a family of local churches and church leaders who are committed to serving the church in Arizona alongside of one another. All of their financial support and mission is carried out through the many local congregations who are involved. She and her husband also planted a church 15 years ago in downtown Phoenix, and we hope you enjoy this conversation with Danae Pierre. Well, thanks for joining us here, Danae. We're really grateful for the opportunity to chat with you. Uh, Why don't we just start off, tell us a little bit of your story. Yeah, sure. Well, I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, so I've been here my whole life. Uh, My mom immigrated from Honduras, and my dad's family is from Boston, Rhode Island area. Um, So I grew up in in the desert, very um, much not liking the city (laughs) for for all kinds of reasons, um, which I might get into a little bit later, but uh, it's really just become such a beautiful place to be a part of. So I met my husband early uh, out of out of college, planting a multi-ethnic church in downtown Phoenix. So we planted, I guess it's been 15 years now, 15 years ago. Um, and that's just been a real gift to be a part of. Um, and then about 10 years ago, we, um, our church and several other churches in the Valley, um, Redemption Church, and uh, just... Yeah, a, a mix of different models came together and said, hey, let's begin to uh, meet regularly and do these things called what at that time was a surge lunch where they'd bring in a speaker and just try to learn and grow together about being missional churches. Um, and over time, that developed into this network that I now lead full time. So I came in about five years ago. Uh, they grew to kind of being more more churches than kind of all of our pastors uh, were able to lead just kind of on top of everything else they were doing. And so I came in full time and I had been doing that the last five years. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, Surge Network, I mean, you're very clear on your website. This is not a nonprofit. This is not a parachurch organization. It's a movement of churches and it's supported by local churches. I think there are a lot of pastors that would say, I would die for something like that. In fact, maybe I'm a little bit jealous. I've tried to create partnerships in my city. I can't. Um, what are some of the ways that you've done that? How do you develop that? I know it's a lot of hard work over several years, but um, that kingdom mindset isn't often what we see in a lot of churches. So why in Phoenix is there a flourishing of these uh, networked non-territorial churches? Well, yeah, you know, so one of the things we talk a lot about is, yeah, we're, our leadership team is made up of pastors and ministers at all sorts of different local churches. Some of them are paid, some of them are gifted by their church. So they're paid, their church gifts them 10 hours a week, maybe 10 hours a month, depending on um, what their role is with our surge team. So we're all serving primarily through our local church, but then serving the whole of the city. And what we say is we want to put Jesus on display in Arizona, and that's going to happen in so much as our local churches are a faithful witness to Jesus, but then our collective witness is strong and healthy and flourishing. And so as we set out, it's honestly, we started as a pretty niche group of very theologically aligned people. And as we pressed into kingdom theology and missional theology um, and, and this desire to be very Jesus-centered and gospel-centered, it was fun to discover, actually, that's in every tradition. And so we've become, um, no, I mean, pressing into being more multi, kind of crossing historic uh, denominational lines across races, um, definitely, you know, from Reform to Anabaptist to Mennonite uh, to Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Baptist, um, some of those uh, different what had been dividing lines. Um, so I would say, yeah, I guess your question was how I think there's a few things that I think were core in our DNA initially. And one was just a spirit of, um, real generosity and curiosity, a real desire to relationally get to know one another. Um, I've been around some other city networks work that I'm doing, and it tends to start more action oriented. Let's do X, Y, or Z together. And I think ours grew a little more organically out of relationship. And then, a desire to continue to invite others to the table and get to know people that we didn't know. But I would say a lot of it is just, I mean, that, that doesn't just come from nowhere. I think the spirit really has put that in uh, our core leadership and then stretched us continually. So it's not, I don't think it's something that's been easy. Um, It's definitely been something we've had to all collectively 
push for, fight for. I use the analogy a little bit of yoga that everyone's kind of got their own cultural pose, yoga pose that they're maybe comfortable, most comfortable with and (laughs) others that you're very terrible at. And some of us are kind of, you know, we're all at all times kind of stretching into positions that are not natural for us Mm. just to meet each other where they're at. Um, and, and from that, I think our churches have, have really been blessed, exposed, encouraged. Um, you know, we, we've had a lot happen in the last 10 years from church planting to starting a seminary, uh, to training a, a real primary driving force for us is equipping and releasing laity for mission in our city. Um, so really tapping into faith and work and rest. And what does that look like? Um, and those are things that no one person or one church could have, could have pulled off. It's something that God has collectively, uh, he's given these gifts throughout our city and kind of brought us to this shared table. Mm. So as I think about just uh, that sounds amazing. And I know one of the things that we've been hearing recently, in fact, just uh, I think our last week, we had a great interview with with a lady who talked about a ministry triage group and uh, or a pastoral triage group, and they hang out on Mondays and they, they share life together. So when, when you think about Surge, like what story is just like, man, if I could share one story about how this has been a blessing, like it just sticks in your soul, like what story would that be? Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's beginning to see... I'll give you a story, but the category is beginning to see ways that the pastoral vocation is experiencing some paradigm shifts in really substantial ways. So, you know, a story is just three weekends ago, um, there is a public school in downtown Phoenix that my kids go to, but I wasn't involved in this, in this story. Um, and probably there's probably 15 Christian families at this public school from four different churches, uh, maybe five different churches. And we kind of all rent bump into each other at pickup and we know each other because our pastors and churches are leading within surge. Um, and there's this uh, old, old elderly widow um, who's had this broken fence for years who waves the kids outside of her like little studio apartment every day. And I think three different, either two or three different churches basically got together on a Saturday, um, got all these volunteers, redid her front yard, rebuilt a fence for her, spent all Saturday doing it. And so just a few weeks ago, I was walking by her front, her, her fence. And it was just a picture of our pastors really beginning to express to their people that their primary, uh, yeah, the goal isn't just to get a bunch of people into our church and fill our auditoriums or our sanctuaries. It really is to equip and release God's people to bless and serve the city, um, utilizing our gifts. And, and, and even in that story, there was a church that had more um, African-American people in it and a church that was maybe more blue collar, you know, 50, 60 year old Anglos. So I was hearing some stories about funny conversations about politics and just the kind of just, just this beautiful picture of eight hours of these two three different groups of people serving and this younger church, this woman who's African-American was telling me just how, yeah, their church doesn't really have a lot of these skills in terms of um, how to build a fence. And so just the, the beauty of that kind of reconciliation that was happening in that moment while they were also loving their neighbors. So I have, there's, that's just like a simple story. I love that. All kinds of things like that happening. Yeah. That's, this is, it just smells like the kingdom mm. when I hear stories like this and the way you all have structured uh, for, for movement rather than just trying to have our individual churches or kingdoms built up. And uh, Doug and I were talking beforehand, um, we're huge Dallas Willard fans. And one of the things that the Dallas Willard uh, said in an intensive um, class at Fuller, uh, someone raised their hand and said, what's the most important thing for a pastor to do, a local church pastor? And his response was, pray for the flourishing and the success of other churches in your city. And, uh, and his TA, uh, James Brian Smith, Jim w- went up to him afterwards and said, Dallas, you can't possibly mean like, that's the most important thing. It, it can't, it's important, but can't be the most important, right, Dallas? And he said, no, it is. And he said, why? And he said, because when I'm praying for the success and the health and the flourishing of other churches in my city, it means that I really do believe that I'm seeking first the kingdom and everything else will fall into place that I actually believe Matthew 633. And so it just sounds a lot like what Dallas said in these stories that you're telling. And there are stories of joy and success, but I also know anytime you're trying to do a partnership like this, there've got to be harrowing stories. And I'm not asking you to list names necessarily, but where has it been really difficult 
And and you can answer this A or B. Where has this been difficult with Surge, citywide or statewide? Where has this been difficult for you with your husband um, co-planting this church in a hyper-local setting in the, in downtown Phoenix? Where are those stories that you just go, what are we doing? What, is this worth it anymore? What is that like for you when ministry gets difficult? Yeah, I think... Um you know, probably the biggest challenge that's kind of presented itself for the last 15 years has been just trying to sit at a, at a multi-ethnic table. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's been, it's been incredibly discouraging at moments to watch seasons or pastors are very idealistic and young and excited and ready to press in on growing a multi-ethnic church or hiring, you know, minority leaders. Um, and then you watch the train wrecks of just all the things that we're just, we're in different worlds and have different histories and different stories and read different theologians and, um, don't trust each other. And we don't even know why we don't trust that author versus this author. We just have some institutional memory that they're not safe, but this person is, and it's very much divided like ethnically, racially. Um, uh, so, so I think, you know, the work for the last 15 years, both very locally, um, has been, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's both been incredibly painful. There's horrible stories, especially walking through the beginning of Black Lives Matter through the election and just us not being prepared as leaders. We, you know, we both like as minorities leading a multi-ethnic church, um, and our own personal angst and disruption, but as well as like, there's just no, there was just, yeah, we had no, we had no idea. We made so many mistakes, um, did, didn't do many things that we will be doing in this, that we're now doing as a church family. And we realized we, we were able to create a multi-ethnic space, but not necessarily do reconciliation. And those are two very different things. And so, um, yeah, we lost about a hundred people after the election, mostly Anglo. And, um, and then God has just kind of really stripped us and humbled us and just given us a fresh vision. And so at, on the outside of it, um, on this end of it, it's like our dream church now. And God has done so much healing and it's just, we're beginning to see these beautiful stories of reconciliation, but it's been very hard. Um, wouldn't trade it for the world. I think what gets hard at sitting at a city context is very few people, um, in the white evangelical church, um, seem called to that or willing to stick in it for the long haul. And there's just always, if you're not a minority and it's not your context, there's always all the other pastoral ministry things that just take your attention. Mm. And so, um, that's one of those things that I just keep, I just pray about a lot and, um, perhaps probably a daily and weekly wrestle and point of just saying, this is God's church and he's doing what he's doing and, you know, yeah, put it back at his feet. Um, and there's, you know, encouraging things that have happened along the way. And re and really, I would say surge is a fruit of, because we've all been sitting at the same table for so long, even if our churches haven't had breakthrough in terms of um, being able to really get underneath why we are so disconnected from neighbors who are different than us or churches that are, you know, ethnically different. Mm -hmm. It's, it's like the shared longing and pain point that I think everyone has held together. And it's just that tension. And I think, I think we're in an interesting season of thinking, what is discipleship like? Particularly in Phoenix, Arizona, very anti-immigrant, very hostile, very strong political opinions to say, how do we make disciples of Jesus in the midst of a city that's, that's making the disciples in different, you know, of, of different kingdoms, um, in ways that are really loving and patient and, um, taking into consideration the different generations, that that's actually a, that, you know, we can be, that's the, yeah, just all, all of that. Sorry. Does that answer your question? It's, um, that's probably the harder things. And then I would say leaders who burned out along the way. So I think because we started as a multi-ethnic, sorry, um, because we started as a missional movement, one of the things that was interesting is um, there's there if you're if you're coming from a context where you've met Jesus on the margins or you're ministering to people in poverty and addictions on the margins, um, it's and then we sit at the tables of just kind of our our kind of traditional church evangelical church 
one of the things that became apparent was mission for those with power. I think the expectations sometimes are that that changes that we're doing this work to see change. We're doing this work to transform our city. I think if you've been on the margins, you don't really know if you're going to like, that's like, yeah, maybe a miracle will happen, but you're kind of just like doing it because this is what Jesus has called you to do. And you don't always have access to power to make those changes. But when you, when you feel this call to transform your city and you actually think you have the tools in your toolbox to do it, and then you hit these huge walls of pain and darkness and walls of hostility that separate us and historical generational sins within the church that are bigger than you, you realize, oh, this is actually not even a five or 10 or 30 or 40 year thing. This is way bigger than any one of us. And so it's been, I think, just watching the low pain tolerance how much, um, how disrupted our inner, just the lack of prayer. Um, I think we've had a lot of exposure of just um, spiritual anemia and need for life with God. That theology isn't enough, doctrine isn't enough. Those aren't bad things, but you can't think your way through like real pain and suffering and evil that our neighbors are facing when you start mm. encountering it. Mm. You can either exit it and say, you know what, can't, can't, it's too much for me. Let me go back to focusing on what I can control, or you can stay in it and lose your faith. The only way to remain both in suffering and in Christ is through this profound encounter with Jesus. So that's been, I think, difficult to watch um, and some of the carnage from just that exposure. But I would also say, kind of like I was saying with our church, on the back end of it, I'm beginning to see, I think we're beginning to see fruit in Phoenix um, of real beautiful things where it's both mission and deep spirituality, that these two things really are connected. And there are rich spiritual resources in the historic African-American church, especially um, in, in the parts of the church globally that have suffered. We have rich theological resources for navigating suffering in life. You're in this dual role. You lead this network, this movement, but at the same time, you know, you and your your husband co-planted this church. So what do Sunday afternoons or Mondays look like? Uh, you know, Monday morning pastor, it's the, you know, this is the most encouraging or discouraging day of the week for pastors often. And so the goal is to be honest and real and raw, but hopeful in this. So we're curious, what does, what does Monday look like for you? And again, it may look different in your dual role, but what are some of those ways that you replenish or you're exhausted or the lies you're tempted to believe, or what does a, what does a typical Sunday afternoon or Monday look for you, look like for you? Yeah, well, I might, I might flip that answer a little bit. So I'll tell you kind of maybe a three year ago version versus now. (laughs) Yeah, great. So three years ago, you know, in kind of the peak of just disruption as a church family, um, and probably just starting out in ministry, really thinking we just, I think our, our understanding of what our role was and what our responsibility was, I don't think was healthy. I think we had too much responsibility for this thing that is a family that all of us members paid and unpaid are responsible to steward and, and use to gift, um, to be, you know, to, to, to love our, our community with. So I think we held a lot more of the weight three years ago and it was really discouraging and personal. It felt, you know, things so, so, and and I think the replenishment came in, you know, kind of crashing and just like pleading for uh, Jesus to show up. And we took a sabbatical, we started counseling all of that. So helpful. So amazing. Such a gift. Um, I think now, honestly, I get to Fridays sometimes of being out of just working with so many pastors, Mm. very discouraged. Um, So Friday is your Monday. (laughs) Friday is my Monday. (laughs) No. And I think because, um, because the lies so many of our pastors and leaders are trapped in is they're heavy. And Mm. And I just, I, so, you know, we, I think we want freedom for our pastors to 
to realize on Monday morning, their church members are waking up, getting ready to do mission. And this is the most exciting morning of the week because now God's people have been sent to flood our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, our city with light. And so we want our pastors waking up Monday praying for, I mean, they have one day a week (laughs) to beat themselves up over, but our people have six days a week, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I know it's not quite that. My husband doesn't like when I say that. (laughs) I'm joking a little. Um, so Sundays, actually, at this point, and my husband and I both reflected on this, even when he's preaching and all the energy that takes, it literally is like we walk in Sunday morning, our kids and the kids of the show, like there's, it is really, truly our family. It's refreshing. We are loved. Um, we had a football game for our oldest son a few weeks ago. And, um, you know, I have a lot of brokenness in my family and I sit down, I'm like, oh, you know, I have no biological family here. And yet like 60 and 70 year olds in the church are, are all over the stands cheering on my son. I'm like, this is the family of God. It's really, honestly, I, I, it, I've never been part of anything like it. And it feels a little bit like heaven. And I also feel that way a little bit with, um, not a little bit, I feel that way with the pastors when we, when we gather, we gather once a month and, it, and I'm an introvert. I don't like big gatherings. I like one-on-one conversations, but that day is just wow, like we're going to spend eternity hanging out and eating food and loving on each other. And it, it really is this little taste of heaven when you, when you get to be in those deep community experiences. So um, refreshment though, all that said, leadership is a lot and exhausting. So um, I mean, solitude and silence is really important for me. Every, I mean, honestly, every day, um, one day, one full day a week, I mean, sorry, one full day a month, multiple week days in a row, a quarter. Like I, I just, I personally, um, feel like because of the complexity, it's not an instant, it's not like that we're leading a, um, you know, it's not like surge isn't an organization. It's a very complicated, um, you know, if we want to use the word, you know, movement and it's my first team and everybody else's second team, which is uh, hard, you know, hard sometimes. And I just think, most of what is required is beyond my leadership capacity or my maturity or my experience. And so just time to like be with Jesus and not take anything too seriously. Um, but also steward well, what God's asked us to do together is really important. And when I don't have those seasons, everyone around me is very quick to, to, to realize it. (laughs) On a super practical level, What does your day away, your one day a month away look like? Um, just thinking about other pastors and leaders who are probably dream about stuff like that, but have never really pulled the trigger on it because maybe it just seems too ambiguous. Like, do you just sit and do yoga all day or, you know, what does it look like? Yeah. Well, I think pulling it off schedule wise, it's interesting when I, I had a mentor maybe six or seven years ago who started inviting me to do these like just even silence and I couldn't do like, I couldn't do 10 minutes of silence. I don't think I could even do five minutes of silence. And I was shocked the first time I sat down and tried to do some silence, like how hard it was. Um, I think when you are wired to, when you're a fast paced, driven, ambitious, what kind of your, depending on your personality and wiring, um, if it's like mine, you're not, it's not, you haven't developed the muscles to sit and, and be silent. So I think you have to build it over time. It doesn't happen. There's resources like spiritual directors and, you know, things that you can do. So I would say now, I I think that we have a huge idol around time. Um, one of the things I've shared with a lot of our pastors as my plate has gotten more full is just this realization the Lord gave me a year ago of like, actually time is infinite and I'm already living in eternity. It's just Mm -hmm. like, I don't actually, I'm not actually bound by this idea that there's not enough time. Like there's, there is an abundance of time because I serve an abundant Lord, whatever he wants me to do. When I feel busy and I don't feel like I have time, it's probably because I'm doing things I, that I'm not supposed to do. And I haven't really been thoughtful or present with what is Jesus asking me to do today or this moment? What am I supposed to hold? So I think for, for pastors, like you start with maybe a, 
a bucket of, you know, 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week. And the first things in, I think have to be the time we need to be with Jesus. And that looks different for everyone and different people figure out different, you know, what works, but whatever that looks like that, you know, that time in the day to, to recharge, to refresh, to pray through even like the meetings you had and, or whatever it is, journal, walk, prayer walks, however you need time that has to go in first. And I think that happens both. And you can, you know, I've already, I'm already like practically like looking at 2020. Okay. Let's block out the days. Now, if you block out those things way in advance, it's amazing what you're able to, to pull off. Now, when it gets to your schedule and you're like, Oh man, I can't fit this meeting in for three weeks. Like that's just a reality sometimes, but I'd rather show up to that meeting three weeks later and be present and have something to offer the person I'm meeting with and be able to receive whatever gifts God's given them to give me than to be like frantic and hurried and, and all that. And I, and that's, I think where I was uh, early on in my, in my twenties. And so that's just probably a product of, of, of the Lord's journey with me. And then I would say that goes true for, you know, when you're a pastor and you're leading teams, another way that I could just see pastors so drained and exhausted is because um, there's so much dysfunction around them and their teams. And a lot of times is because we're trying to squeeze in the people we're called to build team and work through um, into all these other things that we're doing, as opposed to saying, well, after my own, you know, time to really, I mean, hear from Jesus. He's the chief shepherd. I'm um, shepherding under him. Um, then from there, that core team that's, that I'm leading needs to have the second most amount of my time. And then whatever fits in around that, within however many hours a day you decide to work, fit it. And then I, I try to be really hard. I try hard to just then shut down when I'm not in those times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, earlier you mentioned something, Danae, that was fascinating. You said, um, you know, Fridays you're depleted because you're hearing all of the lies that pastors are trapped in. So I'm curious, what what are some of the top lies that you'd be able to identify that pastors are living in that are keeping them from freedom? I, I, I think there is one around authority and power. Um, something about pastoral ministry draws those of us who like telling people what to do, even in the best of ways, right? We like having something of value to give others. We want something significant and eternal with our life. Um, That's a lot of pressure. When actually every member of our church is called to do something significant and eternal with their life, but somehow we have this like extra calling as ministers, at least in our minds, even Mm -hmm. if we don't really think that, And so I do think that that burden to be significant, to be worthy. um, I mean, this is going to sound funny, but even I've I've sat with so many pastors who, I mean, countless pastors who, when I say, what are you, what do you want? What what is the point of all this? What are you striving for? Dozens upon dozens have said, I just want to hear well done, good and faithful servant someday from Jesus. But that definition gets defined by like American success, like well done means having planted a hundred churches or having mm-hmm. started X, Y, Z movements or having, you know, grown my church from 50 to 1500. Um, and I just wonder, and I think that's one of those things I just I, like, what is it? There is just such something so precious about really feeling like God's son, God's daughter, God's mm-hmm. child um, of being, um, Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and just listening, surrounded by the disciples and the important, you know, the people who are going to be like the main headlines in the story. She's just sitting there delighting in Jesus. I, I, so I think there is just this striving to do for God when it's, there's already so much delight and acceptance and freedom in that you, you're a child of God. So that's one. Um, I think just the the pressure. Um, and I particularly, I don't see this as much among female ministers. I see it a lot with our, our brothers, um, is that there is a little bit more pressure for all of your kind of identity to be tied into this, your work, um, in a way that's, that, that is really debilitating. And so that would be another one that just, just the freedom to say, I get to do ministry. I don't have to, I really don't have to. I get paid for this. 
I might not always. And I get, I know that's hard for us as Americans to like, we feel the responsibility of providing for our families and retirement funds and health insurance. But those are like modern American things that yes, you might care about, but that's not necessarily what Jesus has said we need to be worrying about. He gives us the clothes and food that we need for the day. And we are called to follow him. And and there might be a season that that door closes and another one opens. Um, so I, I do think there's this pressure that a lot of my brothers feel that that limits them from doing some of the things that they feel called to do, um, pressing into conversations they really want to press into, being creative in different ways, um, being a little riskier, bolder, all those things. So as we're wrapping up this conversation, first of all, thank you so much for um, just pastoring us this morning. I feel super blessed uh, just to hear your passion come through. Um, but the question that I was thinking about, just as, as I've been listening to you, is um, if, you, if you could give each pastor, each leader, male and female listening, who, who is like feeling that pressure, is feeling that you know, am I doing enough? I just want to hear that, like just an encouragement this morning. What would that encouragement be? You know, one of the things that I think about multiple times a week is how fragile everything feels when it comes to leadership and ministry. Um, even the more, I mean, it's the more whatever quote unquote success you have, or people perceive you as more influential, which isn't really saying much. I keep saying it's a low bar and a small, small, small world. Um, but even like that perception of um, being successful, you act, you actually only feel more fragile because to keep it up to continue to say, okay, we have a hundred pastors coming to this and three months from now or three years from now, will we still have a hundred as if that's even what you're called to be thinking about is just constant. And so that fragility, how fragile it feels, my encouragement again and again to myself and like probably most of my prayer journals have this a few times a month is just like, like stay and continue to embrace the fragility. Like it is fragile and it is the spirit of God in our weakness who is at work. And we want this to stay. So we want this to just continue to be something that only God can get credit for. And as soon as we, you know, think, well, let's try to find a way to strategically make sure this movement continues for the next 20 years, or our church continues to do X, Y, and Z. As soon as we begin to depend on our own strengths, um, I think there's just something that that's lost and that we begin to numb to the reality that this really is very, you know, it's here today, gone tomorrow. I have a pastor who says we're building sandcastles the best led church likely will not be around as it is a hundred years from now. Even the best led one will be rebranded and renamed and part of a different denomination. Like God's church remains, what we're doing comes and goes and it's fragile. And there's just such a beautiful um, invitation to rest in the presence of Jesus in that reality and mm. trust him and learn how to trust him. Um, so I would just encourage people to like, like that feeling and all the fear that it triggers, all the doubts it triggers, that's the enemy. But the feeling of fragility is actually invitation for deeper mm. union with Christ. Mm. Mm. Well, Danae, it's been a real joy to hear your story, to hear Serge's story, the story of your church plant. And thanks for joining us here this morning. And I love that you shared not just the story, but also like very personally naming things. Um, you know, what's most personal is often most universal. And so I know you're connecting a lot with, with our listeners and what you're sharing here. So it's been a real joy. Thank you again for what you're doing in Phoenix. And thanks for being on the podcast this morning. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you guys. conversation with Danae. I really enjoyed hearing about their movement in Phoenix. Seriously, I 
I think there just needs to be more of these opportunities where people are, are moving across denomination, across race, across gender, just having these opportunities to talk about the gospel uh, in really practical, but yet moving, like deeply moving theological ways. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, these these networks in larger cities are growing more and more, which is wonderful. I mean, to hear this in Phoenix, which is great. Portland, several years ago, kind of started that of what does it look like for the whole church to get together, Portland, Oregon, around an entire city. Uh, the mayor, who was a um, very extreme atheist, was like praising them left and right, coming wow. to events, just loving, speaking the praises of churches that came together throughout the city to serve. And so it's really encouraging to hear this in, in Phoenix. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 3, uh, where Paul's talking. He says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made has been making it grow. So neither one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace of uh, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than what the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. That just sounds so much like what Serge is doing. It really does. And I, I really appreciated even the way we ended the conversation as she talked about, hey, we're just building sandcastles. Yeah. And again, I, I think some people would be like, what do you mean? This is like, it's God's church. But I loved... There's a playfulness of that. Like we do the best we can with what we have and we are faithful to what God has called us to. But we realize that a hundred years from now, it's going to be different than what we set it out to be. I mean, yeah. JR, you, you know, you and I pastor together and two years for, you know, two years later, things have changed a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, interestingly, I think she said it was from one of the largest churches in Phoenix that said that yes. one of the pastors of the largest church. So, it, you know, you think, Oh, St. Castles with a tiny church. No, right. this is a ginormous the church. Gin yes. And to have that perspective is, is fascinating. So, um, yeah. And I, you know, we told Danae this after we stopped recording, um, but that she, she was very prophetic and and also pastoral. She was strategic while also contemplative, and really getting down to the personal side of what it means to be a leader called to God's kingdom. And that's not a normal mix that you mentioned. That's not a normal mix of giftedness, which I would agree. There yeah. doesn't seem to be a ton of folks that that hold those kinds of um, just gift giftings. Yeah, I, I was really, and I think, I wonder if part of it also has to do with the hats that she wears. So she leads a network and also is, is, you know, co-planted a church with her husband and how both of those pieces really deeply impact the streams in which she swims in. Yeah. Yeah. To be hyper-local in a neighborhood, in a community, while also being regional and even statewide and sort of living in both of those worlds, I bet gives her just such a more, uh, a richer, more robust understanding of God and his kingdom and where he's at work in the region, which is great. So um, let's leave our listeners with uh, some questions, some actions, resources. Uh, you know, what's a question that we can, we can give listeners? Yeah. One of the questions that I I've just been sitting with and she just, that she asked, I don't even think she thought much of it as a really important question, but what is Jesus asking me to do or hold today? Uh, for me, I thought that that's something that would be helpful for pastors and leaders to be asking on a daily basis. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. And as far as resources, I mean, and some of you may be saying, "Well, I don't, I don't live in Phoenix." You know, Surge Network sounds wonderful, but I don't live in the, in Arizona. But we want to put in the show notes, surgenetwork.com. You can see what they're doing. There's a lot to learn on their website and what they offer and how they're working together. So even if you're not in Arizona, check that out. But on a on a more national uh, level. Uh, Tim Keller's Redeemer City to City network and movement is wonderful. And so if you're not familiar with that, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, founded by Tim Keller. Tim Keller has stepped away from local day-to-day -day working at um, Redeemer Presbyterian and now helps with the city-to-city -city movement across the country. And uh, on their website, they just simply say, we prayerfully recruit, train, coach, and resource leaders to start and strengthen churches and networks in their cities. So if you're listening to this and saying, I want to do something a across uh, not just my church, but across my community, across my city or my region. How do I do that? Uh, RedeemerCityToCity.com is a fantastic resource. Uh, there, we'll also put that 
in the show notes as well. So, um, and yeah. I think that gets us to uh, a super practical resource slash challenge. And that's if this is if this is stirring something in you, we want to challenge you to take one pastor to reach out to one pastor and take them to lunch. Uh, just to sit and listen to their story, uh, to sit and encourage, just to pay attention to what God is doing in them. Um, the second thing is we would love uh, for you to pray for uh, five churches in your zip code over the next month and to be present with what it looks like to pray and maybe even reach out and say, what's one way I could be praying for your church in this season? And then the last thing is um, to have your entire church congregation uh, be praying for two different churches in the next month. We feel like these things really embody the way that Danae encouraged us uh, to begin to think outside of our own particular space and building. Yeah. And these challenges that Doug just mentioned come from that Willard quote that we talked about, you know, by being asked, what's the most important thing for a pastor to do? Willard's response was pray for the success and flourishing of other churches in your city. So rather than just a profound quote from Willard, how about we do it? And so that's where we want to challenge you with this. So it's been wonderful to be with you all again on this episode. We're really grateful for our growing audience and those who are listening, whether you're in ministry or not. And we're really grateful for you. But for those of you here on this Monday where you're discouraged and in need of replenishment and hope, may you remember that we're building sandcastles. And while that sounds discouraging, is actually incredibly encouraging to be able to know that we build the, the kingdom, which is built on the solid rock. And so may we be the kinds of leaders who seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and everything else, including our churches, will take care of themselves. There's real freedom in that when we truly believe it. So we bless you, pastors. We thank you for your work. And we uh, encourage you as you go into the week to remember that God has already been at work. We get a chance to join him. We don't start anything new. We just respond to God and his amazing love and compassion. God bless and bless God. Have a great week.